Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Post Questionnaire. 35 questions giving us insight into what makes creative people tick. Welcome back to the Post Questionnaire. Carolyn and I are thrilled and excited to speak to Jeremy Harris today. Jeremy O'Harris is an American actor and playwright who's known for his plays Daddy and Slave Play, which opened on Broadway about a year ago. He was the winner of the 2018 Paula Vogel Playwriting Award given by the Vineyard Theater in New York City. He's a graduate of Yale University, and I met him first where we talked about the classics, Ibsen, Strindberg, Brecht, at an event where he was awarded for his visionary leadership by Out Magazine. Harris is a co-author on the screenplay to the forthcoming film Zola, directed by Janicza Bravo. And he signed a deal with HBO and is developing a pilot and is becoming a co-producer for season two of Euphoria, which many of you have probably seen or should at least check out. He's Jeremy O'Harris on Twitter. We are Proust.Questionnaire on Instagram, Caroline Weber 2020 on Instagram, and you can find the show also under Ulrich Bear on YouTube. I'm Uli NYC on Instagram. Please follow the show on YouTube and other channels such as Spotify and Apple, give it some stars because it makes it easier for others to find it. We were just thrilled to talk to Jeremy today on Zoom while he was in London, and I hope you enjoy him answering 35 questions first popularized by Marcel Proust. Jeremy, thank you so much for being on the Proust questionnaire. We're thrilled to get you from London today, and we're going to start you right out. Yes. Jeremy, what is your idea of perfect happiness? My idea of perfect happiness is probably what the um, midpoint of my quarantine so far was, which was um, being able to um, know that my entire family was taken care of, mm -hmm. that I had a lot of food in the refrigerator, a lot of wine in the refrigerator, and a uh, four seasons of multiple animes that I was like dying to watch, um, <laughs> waiting for me to watch with fresh eyes. Nice. Wow. That's Jeez. like, the, yeah, the modern version of a jug of wine and thou. That sounds really good. <laughs> Jeremy, what is your greatest fear? I think my greatest fear has shifted a lot, but recently a fear would be that um, I would let my ambition 
outweigh my compassion and empathy for others around me. Right. Okay. Thank you. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. But I don't think we see any evidence of that. So you're doing great. <laughs> I'm not supposed to give actually comments on the answers, but I just <laughs> I know, but then it feels very brusque uh, because, yeah, each answer is usually so interesting. Um, what is the trait you most deplore in yourself? I think the trait I most deplore in myself is also the thing that is, I don't know, exhilarating about me, which is the fact that, like, I like to win. And I think that's <laughs> why I sometimes fear my own ambitions, because mm. it's, if I'm given a task that has an outcome that, like, um, has has like a fleet of winners and a fleet of losers. I usually can do the math on how to be in the winner circle very quickly. And that's like, you know, a product of growing up poor in like a capitalist society and like knowing that I needed to have the tools to help get our family in a different space for it or was told that I had the tools to do that. So mm -hmm. I learned how to utilize those tools. And that's a trait that I don't love about myself. Hmm. And so I'm constantly policing it. <laughs> okay. Um, what is the trait you most deplore in others? I try not to um, project my own morality on the other people. Um, but I would say that there are traits that in others that are close to me that, like, annoy me. And usually those are just, like, weird tics. Like, I really dislike the way people swallow. Um, and, and that has nothing to do with them at all. It's just like, I hate the sound of people swallowing. Apparently that's genetic. There's a word it for is? it. It's totally, I'll look it up and I'll send it to you because I learned from 23andMe that I have it genetically. And yeah, wow. it's, it's, but it's the, for me, it's the sound of chewing, but I think it's, I think it's the same thing. It's like, you can't bear it. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh, okay, that's a good one. That's a good, but and it feels petty and yet it, it really gets, you know, it's kind of reassuring to know that it has a supposedly scientific basis, I guess. Which living person do you most admire? The living person that I most admire, again, I think this is a really complicated thing because I think that like that person can change all the time. But I think that a person that I constantly go back to um, my deep admiration of is um, Adrienne Kennedy. I'm like currently trying to work on a project with her. She's like an 89 year old experimental playwright. And she, um, we've been trying to work on this project together and the contract involves, I mean, the, the project involves like a big contract and like a complex contract. And she was just like, um, she said to me the other day, she was like, Jeremy, I don't know that I will ever sign this contract. I've been doing this since the 50s and I've never signed this contract. And the contract means that you are giving up your control to a piece of paper. So mm -hmm. I questioned that. And I was like, that's so beautiful. And I hope that I have that same conviction when I'm 89, that like, um, can like be a driver in how I make all the decisions around my art and my worth as an artist. It's beautiful to hear also that someone who's 89, uh, Adrian Kennedy would say, I don't, I'm not in a rush to sign anything if it doesn't meet <laughs> my, my standards. Exactly, <laughs> That's exactly. Great. That's really great. What is your greatest extravagance? My greatest extravagance? I think that's a question I need to like pick out. Is it an extravagance that like I've indulged in or like an extra extravagance that's like been given to me? 
Either way, maybe I think it probably most people think it's probably something you indulge in. I would say the my biggest extravagance is probably that I prefer Ubers to public transit, especially like COVID has given me like an excuse to do that more often because, you know, it feels safer somehow to be in an Uber more so than being inside of a crowded train. But I do like being in an Uber and I generally don't go for like a normal Uber. I generally go for kind of a fancy uber black uber yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so that's my biggest extravagance and i and i feel bad saying it but it's true <laughs> uh, what is your what was, what was Proust? what was Proust's answer to that oh god i'm trying to remember what his extravagant his greatest extravagance was well look it up he did it he did this questionnaire twice and we'll look oh, at wow. it up. And he, yeah so he was 15 i don't know we have to think we want to think it was a fancy fountain pen but it was probably something much more indulgent. <laughs> it, it might have been, you know, he did, at least I know that by the end of his life, he, he believed and acknowledged that one of his greatest extravagances was, and this makes me want to have been friends with Proust, uh, among other reasons, his greatest extravagance was sending flowers. Like, oh, I love that. And, and like huge flowers. I have one friend who's kind of like this, and I always love it when this friend of mine does something that he thinks is wrong, so that I get a gigantic tree of flowers. And it's never any, you know, I never merit or whatever happened never merited, but Proust, like for the least thing, it's like, oh, I was two minutes late to your dinner. Here are some flowers. Um, so that was a massive wow. extravagance of his. And I think he had already started it as kind of a young man, but I'm not sure if it made it into the questionnaire or not. Wow. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, what is your current state of mind, Jeremy? My current state of mind is um, muddled. Um, and uh, tipsy, because I just had half a bottle of wine at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted us to do this um, questionnaire with wine, so thank you for, for starting that for us. That, that, that breaks <laughs> the ice. Um, what do you consider the most overrated virtue? I think the most overrated virtue is maybe bravery. We put a lot of import on bravery, but bravery can also put, your, put yourself and your family and the people that are important to you in danger sometimes. And I think that like, you know, in a lot of ways it could be like a brave move to like not vote for anyone this election that are in the like major candidacies, right? But like, you know, as Angela Davis has been saying a lot, like we had to like think of new paradigms for how, where, where we place our bravery and like what, you know, like what we do with those things and like, who might create space for us to be more brave later. So I think like being reserved and selective with our bravery might be really important mm. um, to think about. And so, yeah. I like this concept, strategic bravery. That's, mm -hmm. That sounds interesting, how to think about that. On what occasion do you lie? I think that like I, for a long time, I lied more than I do now. And I think that now I sort of lie to myself um, more often, you know? I tell myself that I'm like comfortable going to a restaurant without a mask on. I tell myself that like, um, I'm like, I'm excited about uh, voting in November. Like I tell myself all these weird things that um, aren't really true. I'm trying to make sense of both those answers, but I'll just move on. I probably <laughs> Um, maybe those are examples of selective bravery. I don't know. Um, what, do you <laughs> most, what do you most dislike, Jeremy, about your appearance? I think that as a young person, I dislike everything about my appearance. But mm -hmm. I think recently, 
And this is the result of having, of like my vanity being like affirmed by like fashion magazines, I guess, is that yeah. I'm starting to like a lot more about my appearance. And I think that that's something that's really new for me. I think that like constantly I'm like, oh, I wish that like I had like a six pack and muscles, but then <laughs> I'm able to fit into clothes that people with muscles can't fit into. And, and I like the way those clothes look on my body. And I'm like, oh, that's really exciting. Like I like this. So I would say that generally the constant that I go back to is like not having an athletic, a deeply athletic body. But overwhelmingly, I'm coming to terms with the fact that I kind of really like my body. Which living person do you most despise? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the energy to despise anyone really. Like I, because I'm such a Gemini that I go back and forth between being like that person's horrible, to that person's like great. But I think that I despise the what I despise the most are people who virtue signal, they virtue signal their rightness. Like, I think those are the people that I am annoyed with the most because mm -hmm. I'm constantly just like, if we believe that people can change and shift and like grow through learning, then like, how is it that you can like lord certain like understandings that you say were innate to you? Like, I just don't, I mean, I, but I don't even despise those people. I'm just more so like annoyed by them because I'm excited for the moment that their rightness is proven to be like wrong in some way. So I think that's in a lot of ways like people I went to undergrad and grad school with who would like sort of like loudly protest like their distaste for someone like Beyonce I guess right for um because it's like it's not like they're bell hooks saying that Beyonce is a terrorist they're like a college <laughs> right. freshman mimicking that or like a graduate student like mimicking that and yet they aren't able to reconcile that disdain for her ambition with like their own ambitions inside of the realm of academia, et cetera, you know? Um, and so I think that like that sort of like ability to uh, be like hypocritical in critique and righteously hypocritical in critique is something that like, I don't despise necessarily, but I find deeply annoying. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can say as an academic that I would 100% choose Beyonce's talents over mine or the achievements of <laughs> pretty much any colleague. Uli, even maybe you, maybe except for Uli. Yes. I would put Beyonce above all academics except possibly Uli. But um, I, I think <laughs> the, the, the difficulty is for many of us, which is really me only, that I'm sure my ambition is far greater than Beyonce, but my accomplishment is nothing compared to her. <laughs> 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 which is why, yeah, maybe which is why we're so fierce then about, you know, denouncing just, somebody else's ambitions. I mean, I woke up like that, but I'm trying and trying and trying. She just gets it done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that's my thing with like Belle and like, you know, Audre Lorde and Angela yeah. Davis. I'm like, they can be righteous in whatever they think because they've accomplished more than like any of us can accomplish. Right. So like, they can say anything and I'm like, whatever. But like most of my colleagues haven't. <laughs> So it's like that's, that's the work that Bell Hooks has done to be able to write the critique and deconstruction of Beyonce, which is a, informed by some deep appreciation, I think, which is very different mm -hmm. from what you're saying, this kind of virtue signaling of dismissing an entire career or something. Yeah, very different. Hmm. Um, Uli, I'm still just savoring the idea that your ambition is greater than Beyonce's. <laughs> What is the quality you most like in a man? This is, this is the quality I've disliked in myself, but I like in another man is um, ambition. Oh, <laughs> like, I, like, okay. 
I tend to constantly date other ambitious men um, while I hate it in myself. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. Maybe so, I like things that I know that I'll one day dislike about them. Oh, that helps. Yeah. You are a Gemini in that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so this is a very, we, we always comment, these are very gendered questions because they date to the 1890s. So what is the quality you most like in a woman? I think it's the same. You know, I think when I look at the people that are closest to me, they're deeply ambitious people. And yet I think that all of them have a complicated relationship to that ambition. And that's what keeps our relationship growing and maturing, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's great if you can, that's an area where you can all kind of be honest with each other about that ambition. Because I think ambition isn't an easy thing to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, I feel very blessed that I have a lot of friends that are very open about their insecurities and their ambitions. Yeah. Which words or phrases do you most overuse? I use like a lot. I use um, entanglement a lot, which is really funny because now that's a buzzword because Jada Pinkett Smith used it in her (laughs) interview about her possible open marriage. Oh, Um, she did? Yes. And so, and a lot of people texted me and they were like, oh my God, she's using your word. (laughs) Um, um, I I, I say complexity a lot too. Okay. What or who is the greatest love of your life? I think the greatest love of my life is my mother. And that's mainly just because I'm the best uh, person that Freud could have like looked into Oedipal complexes with. Um, (laughs) Wow. Well, that was Marcel Proust's answer as well. If that, it puts you in pretty good company. <laughs> That's amazing. When and where were you happiest? I think I was probably um, happiest. I was probably like happiest at the opening night of my play. Um, I think just because it was the first time my mom got to see something that was so honest and true to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to witness her appreciate people um, affirming me. Because uh, I think that she spent a lot of her young life um, affirming me when other people wouldn't. And I think she'd been waiting for a time to see people affirm this child she had raised. Mm-hmm. You know, Jeremy, I saw your opening night, I remember. And I remember actually the scene outside of the theater and how many people around you were really filled with love and support that was free of, of competitiveness, which was really nice, I thought, that people were sort mm-hmm. of just holding you up to say, this is an accomplishment for everyone around you, which was really nice to see, I thought. It was a, yeah. it was a nice moment. Which talent would you most like to have? I think that I would, after watching a lot of sports anime. I wish that I had the talent to um, connect with my body um, over a long period of time and training in order to accomplish something new. It's like what Mishima ended up doing. It's like, not only was he an amazing writer, but he was an amazing like um, athlete as well. And I think that like, there's something I envy about that. And I envy it because it, it is accessible. It just requires me to like reject my laziness. And um, I covet my own laziness in some ways. <laughs> there again, you're in, oh, sorry, Yuli. Sorry, it's interesting that Mishima is an unusual example because 
usually in the Western tradition, writing is considered sort of the antithesis to physical presence, that it's a denial of the body in favor of the intellect, but that actually embodied writing. So actually, I, there are some people, of course, and I think they would be largely women writers who would say the body is a tool and an instrument in writing, but men have written a lot as if the body doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although Uli and I were, were college athletes together, and I feel like Uli, you and I had a conversation once where we were listing the few intellectuals we could think of who actually had some sort of sporty side. So like, aren't you the one, who, I thought you told me that Martin Heidegger was a ski instructor, for instance. And Jacques, Derrida, and Jacques Derrida wanted to be a professional soccer player. And Albert wow. Camus was a boxer. So yeah, so there's, there's some small sub-tradition of, of writers, you know, who, who actually do take seriously this idea that in training your body, you're also training your mind. One of my favorite classmates at Yale, Tori Sampson, was a very accomplished basketball player. And wow. um, she and I spoke a lot about how playwriting and like sport, especially basketball, had a lot in common because like, you know, uh, sportsmanship is something that doesn't reject uh, competitiveness, you know, like it's important, it's like, it's like necessary, but also like you have to shake everyone's hand afterwards and like someone doing better than you on the court in one game um, drives you to push yourself to a different space. And she was like, I don't know why more playwrights don't talk about um, seeing a great Annie Baker play and wanting to write as well as her is like a hmm. good thing and not like a bad thing. Like, you know, the sort of like sportsman envy and like competitiveness actually drives people to do things that they couldn't have done other otherwise. Like Tanya Harding, if she didn't have sort of such steep competition would have never created um, some of the most difficult skating techniques for women to do um, in figure skating, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think of yourself sort of in this kind of tradition of playwrights? Do you think of them as kind of, in this analogy, as sort of competitors who spur you on to do more and better? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think that because like, you know, the other thing that's cool about like, you know, professional sports is that people get traded to the same teams, right? You know, so it's like one season I'm in the opposite, like I'm in a different theater than Will Arbery. And then the next year he and I are sharing a season somewhere. And right. so we're both like working to try to make sure that this theater's season is the best it could possibly be. Um, mm -hmm. When like the season before I was at New York Theater Workshop and he was at Playwrights Horizons and et cetera, you know what I mean? It's like things like that, um, right, right. which is silly, but it's kind of fun, you know? No, 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 but it totally means like the whole arena is very big, but you could actually make the whole field lift up like in that. Yes, yes. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Um, I don't think there is anything. Um, and that's not like, and that's not, I think that I think that where I've come to as um, someone in their very early 30s is like this acceptance of all of my flaws um, or an attempt to consistently do like an, a, a project of acceptance. So I think that it's um, more helpful for me to like say, I like my flaws. So I don't know that I would want to change them right now, but that yeah. might change in five years. Like in five years, I might be like, I want to get Botox or I want to like, you know, modulate my body. I want to get a tattoo and mod my body that way, you know? But at this moment, I feel like there's nothing I want to change. Yeah. Well, we'd like you to come back in five years anyway. You know, Proust did this with a few years of distance and the answers did change. So it'd be fun to see what's changed for you over the next several years. What do you consider your greatest achievement? 
I think my greatest achievement so far has been surviving past 27 because a psychic told me when I was 18 that I would die before I was 27. Oh my yeah. God. Well, well, you know what's good? It was just a fake psychic. Yes. Right. Yes. Was that, did that psychic have any history of being accurate in other cases? I mean, that's a terrible thing to tell someone. Terrible. Terrible. Yes, yes, she she actually had been really accurate about a lot of things. And I think that what she might have seen were the two different horrible car accidents I had wow. um, at 25 and 27. Oh, okay. All right. Well, Willie and I are both superstitious, so we're knocking on wood. But yes, congratulations on making it past 27. Um, <laughs> if you were, speaking of your early death, though, if you were to die and come back as another person or a thing, who or what would that be? I would want to come back as like whatever child my niece has. Um, oh. I think Kyra is going to be a really great mom um, <laughs> if she decides to have kids. And so um, I'd want to come back as maybe her kid. How old is she now? She's eight. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So no time soon. No time soon. Yeah. Where would you most like to live? I kind of like this idea that like I might never own a home anywhere and that I'll be able to exist in a lot of different places. But I've currently been really interested in like spending some time in Kyoto and just hanging out there. There are a lot of Japanese writers that I really respect. And also my like obsession with Japanese animation has like really um, hit a fever pitch. So I think going there and learning more about the culture as someone who's like an expat there could be really exhilarating, especially a black expat. You know, it's funny, Jeremy, we interviewed um, this friend of ours, a photographer, Omar Victor Diop from Senegal, and he wants to live in Kyoto. Wow. Uh, because he had a residency and he said he really felt completely, this was the place where he could work and he really felt completely at ease. So we interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. He was, he's in Dakar in lockdown right now. And I met him in Dakar many years ago. And he said Kyoto is the place. So we get we're gonna connect you. So there's an and he's, yes. he's a really amazing artist, a really incredible artist, um, who's had shows all over the world. But he said Kyoto is the place for him as a Senegalese photographer to be. Wow. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'll connect you, yeah. Uh, what is your most treasured possession? My most treasured possession is um, probably now this award that my mom and my stepdad gave me. That was this award they gave me on the um, first night that my play premiered off-Broadway. And it was a statue that got made of like an eagle flying. And they said, if no one else gives you, they like, if no one else gives you an award, we, we want you to know that your first award came from us. And it's like really beautiful and it's sitting in my office and I just, I love it. That's incredible. That's really, really lovely. Oh God. Yeah. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Um, what do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? The lowest depth of misery is um, feeling alone and not having anyone you can tell. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite occupation? I would say my favorite occupation is probably being a, a playwright. I think that like, you know, being someone who like has made a job of like, bringing spectacle to a community, a small community, is uh, really, really beautiful and cool. And 
I think that it's the only one, the only profession that I would like um, always want to go back to do. Right, I guess I could change that to be less a playwright and more a theater maker. But yeah, I think it's just like making theaters, it's like weird artisan craft that like is literally just there to serve a small community. And um, I, I like that. What is your most marked characteristic? What you think other people notice about you first or most? I think it's my, um, the uh, exuberance I have around being discursive. I think that people really like notice that about me and realize that like, I don't run away from hard conversations and I like seeking them out, you know? Yeah, no, this is, I mean, meeting you for the first time, I can say I'm noticing it and it makes you such a good guest on this podcast. <laughs> so it's a good fit, thank you. Um, what do you most value in your friends? I most value in my friends, um, their humor. I think that the friends that I keep closest are some of the funniest people in the world and have a real ability with language that brings out humor in the most mundane situations. Yeah. I actually, Jeremy, just when you just said that you're discursive and you seek out conversation, it is such a, it's an unusual talent to put language on stage and make it work. And in some ways, theater has so many dimensions and there's characters and plot and all this, but that language itself. So I, rem I think sort of in your plays that language actually starts performing. It's not the characters anymore, the plot, but the words themselves sort of sit in space. I really like that, actually. It's a really unusual, I think, um, facility to hear language as this kind of medium that can actually generate its own excitement and not in the service yeah. of a character moving or the plot moving or some idea being communicated, but that language itself. I think both Carolyn and I, because we met such a long time ago, we actually always thought language is this, has this dimension that it has its own weight in the world. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think that's why I like theory so much because that, that does it really well on the page, you know, like you're reading, you know, Sadia Hartman or, you know, um, Heidegger and like the words jump off the page and become fully formed three-dimensional people, you know, um, which is really cool. They become, even if they're citing constantly, the person who's the maestro of these citations and these words becomes like a new character inside of the realm of their conversation, which I find really cool. I just did a new edition of uh, Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest, which is so funny and so easily mistaken as just funny, but sort of that every sentence take, it's like the sentences are characters almost. It's just, mm. Characters are just vehicles, but the, what they say takes on this life. It's really incredible, actually, to see that on the page. <laughs> uh, who are your favorite writers? Oh, so many. Um, Adrian Kennedy, um, Alicia Harris, um, Toni Morrison, Will Arbery, Tori Sampson. God, so many friends. C Celine Song, uh, Sadia Hartman, Antoine Sargent. Casey Gerald, and then Paul Thomas Anderson is probably my favorite screenwriter ever. Okay. Who are your, who is your hero of fiction, a fictional character? What fictional character is my hero or yeah. what? Yeah. Um, I would say that, um, and this is, <laughs> this is funny because like I helped turn it into a screen icon, but 
uh, I was worked with someone else to do it. But I would say that Zola, who um, at like at Zolar Moon, who is uh, the character that um, the real woman Asia King wrote, um, is sort of this auto fictional character of herself that she wrote inside of a Twitter thread that we adapted, me and Janixa Bravo adapted into a film, is probably my uh, fictional hero. Because she's like a young Black woman who was in these, this outside circumstance, who um, was able to navigate that circumstance with humor, candor, ingenuity, and also like a lot of heart and empathy for one of the people that was like the most violent to her in that space. And I find that to be a very difficult thing to accomplish as a writer. Yeah. What are your favorite names? Ooh, my favorite names. My favorite names are probably names that most people wouldn't consider a name. So I I had a dream one time that my, uh, or a friend had a dream one time that they were babysitting my child and my child's name was Color. And I really liked oh. that. Yeah. Um, uh, I really like the name Hendrix. I love, I love any name from like a corner of Europe that um, sounds really odd. I like any name that was created in like a rough neighborhood in like the South. I like names that are, are difficult. Um, like my sister's name is Kiasha, and I think that name is really stunning and odd, yeah. and I had never encountered it before. It was my sister's name. Yeah. Who are your heroes in real life? My heroes in real life are people who stand up for themselves when the world tells them that like no one has an interest or time for them to stand up for themselves or there's no space for that. So I think that someone like Janixa Bravo witnessing the ways that she stood up to like producers and other people, other peers in the field around like her ability to be a director after years of being told that she was just a costume designer. It's really, um, it's enlivening. Um, I think that uh, like reading Tanya Pinkins and her like her journey through our community has been really like, you know, phenomenal. I think that anyone who has had to like uh, put their bodies and their livelihoods on the line in order to stand up for what they believe is right is someone that's a hero. Yeah. Which historical figure do you most identify with? I think I probably most identify with, oh God, this is so hard. I would say that like, I'm most identified maybe with the person who I share a birthday with, which is the Marquis de Sade. No I'm way, like, really? Yes. yes I, I wrote my dissertation I, about him. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. And oh I'm ashamed to say I don't remember his birthday. When's, the birth, when's his birthday? June 2nd. Okay. Oh my God, and so, all right, tell us more. I'm sorry, but yeah, I love him. And, yes. and he doesn't come up often somehow on this podcast, so. Oh, that's so funny. I think that the fact that he um, wasn't afraid of where um, his imaginary could take him, where yeah. his erotic could take him, aligns very deeply with what I do as a writer and what I have done as a writer. And even when those erotics or those imaginaries take us to places that other people find untoward, we like are able to see and like project their necessity so that a certain audience begins to hold on to these things and like um, move into a different space of consciousness because of them. I would that... love to have a conversation with the two of you about this side. Let's do it. Caroline and I did a presentation in graduate school, I remember, and we actually way overdid it and spent like three weeks 
on obsessing about the design, like whether to, how to read this book today, how to do this. So we actually spent way more time than any reasonable person should ever do reading this. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh no, yeah, let, let's do, I mean, I know you're a crazy busy man, but no, and I agree with you actually, and, and knowing, um, you, knowing only daddy and slave play, I would say I actually really see the kinship, you know, that like yeah. going to these places that, you know, Saad, I always love telling my students that Saad spent more time in jail he, and he spent more time in jail under more successive political regimes than any other writer in European history. It was like five wow. or six different political regimes. He was jailed under each of them. And then sometimes it was because like he poisoned a prostitute or he like, you know, <laughs> beat up a, like not all of them were crimes of the imagination, but a lot of them were crimes of the imagination and just saying, just because people don't think that it's toward, just because people don't think that it's seemly, doesn't mean I can't imagine it and doesn't mean it isn't worth exploring and thinking and talking about. So that's, yeah. uh, that's amazing that, that he, that you share a birthday with him and that that identification is, is meaningful to you. Yeah, I discovered out, I discovered, cause you know, there was a thing where like, you know, Wikipedia was becoming a thing when I was in middle school and high school and everyone would look up like who the famous people were, who, that were born on their birthdays. And I had no famous people born on my birthday, except for the Marquis de Sade. Or no one. one that was famous in a way that I recognized. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I've heard that name before. Who is that, you know? And then I ordered um, Philosophy of the Boudoir. Yeah. And I read that in middle school. And I was like, this no! is so crazy. I'm obsessed. Yeah. Oh my that's God, funny. you were a precocious mind. But yeah, that's the one yeah. that I always tell people to start with. It's it's everything you need about Saad is in that book, actually. Yes, 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 yes. So, it's so a phenomenal book. presentation on Jacques Lacan's essay on Kant with Saad. Oh, right, yeah. I've never read that. It's kind of interesting. It's morality and the law. And how do you read the moral law as actually undone and invested in the erotics of and, and the desire. So it's this really complicated kind of, so we try to undo that. What is it that you most dislike? I think that I most dislike intellectual laziness. Hmm. I think that, that that bores me and frustrates me more than anything else. It's like having someone who's like uncurious about ideas, you know, uncurious about their, about the ways in which their worldview might be flawed, even if it's generally inside of like a popular pocket, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even if that popular pocket is just like the five people that they talk to, you know? Like, you know, <laughs> like I think JK Rowling is someone that's like a great example of someone who's like projected like intellectual, uh, being intellectually like not curious as like a, a space of, um, that could be valorized instead of a place that can be critiqued. Like, no, 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 you can't just be like everyone else is a thought police because they don't agree that your um, like five spaces of reference are not, um, or, or totally deny like a huge system of thought that other people hold. It's like, it should tell, prove to me that you've held both ideas like um, equally um, before you, decide, you tell me that like everyone else is attacking you without um, cause, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, and again, I see the sod influence there because, like, I think that's what made people crazy about him and what he was doing is that he was like, "Why can't I ask this question? I'm curious about that. What if I extended this line of reasoning? What if I extended, you know, some line of reasoning about the rights of man 
to include universal prostitution and crime mm -hmm. as a form of brotherhood. I, you know, that curiosity was so threatening to so many people. And I love your phrase of pockets of popularity, you know, people who kind of get stuck in these little sacks of, of willful ignorance. And um, yeah, that, it, that's a, to me, it seems like that's a good quality to want to resist right now. What is your greatest regret? Oh God, that's really hard. I think my greatest regret is that I spent a long portion of my life attempting to like clean up certain parts of my past that I worried other people would judge, like the fact that I grew up without my dad. So for the longest time, I didn't tell anyone that I didn't actually know my dad. You know, I just like lived with that truth, you know? Um, but I didn't talk to anyone about it. And because I didn't talk to anyone about it, when I finally wrote a play about it, there was like a pocket of dishonesty inside of that. Um, that was because I had basically told a lie so often that it had become true to me. So yeah. I think that that's one thing that I've never, that I, that's one thing I actually do regret. But I think mm -hmm. also like that's what being a young person is. It's like making dumb mistakes like that, you know? How would you like to die? I would like to die giving a big speech somewhere um, and being <laughs> witness giving that speech. Like, and then just like keel over. <laughs> <laughs> Would you feel over at the end of the speech or like in the middle, leaving them wanting more? I think more? like half, like in the middle and it's like the speech isn't written down. I was just like <laughs> reciting it from memory. So they <laughs> so know it's like, lost when you keel over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like, it's an, there's an ellipses on the thought. And like, I feel like that would be a great way to die with an ellipses on a thought. <laughs> okay. What is your motto? My motto is, I think I just created one the other day that I really liked, which is like, oh God, right towards cancellation or something. It was like something like that. But I think that's my new motto, which is like, because again, like I don't, A, I don't believe that cancellation is real. So it's like the Barry Weisses of the world and like the Thomas Chatterson Williams of the world are like so annoying to me because they like have this idea that like the 2% of the population on Twitter like actually are people and aren't just like, a sort of like group uh, of like a small sector of the, of the populace that is able to engage with your work and either say they like it or hate it, you know? And like a bunch of people saying they hate your thing isn't a bad thing. It's actually like a thing that forces other people to engage with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's actually, yeah. like it's like, if, if people hadn't told me how much they hated Barry Weiss, I would have never read her. So the fact that she quit her job before she quit Twitter because of the Twitter mob, quote unquote, is crazy to me. Yeah. Um, so I think that like, I want to keep writing towards being canceled um, because at least then I, I can feel like I'm writing like something that's like scary for me, dangerous to me and like fun for me. Um, because if I make getting canceled a fun game, then like there's nothing to fear in it, you know? It's quite interesting. I thought about this a lot when you just said writing toward cancellation. I just did this little, these two issues of Oscar Wilde's play and novel and Oscar Wilde was truly canceled like his career was destroyed, <laughs> he was sentenced to prison, hard labor, and so as we all know, but in some ways what was on trial was literature, and what was on trial mm -hmm. was the imagination. So in some ways it's kind of an interesting case. We add one question to this, Jeremy, to this questionnaire, um, which is who would you like to hear respond to these questions on this podcast? Always Sidia Hartman. Hmm. Um, Roxanne Gay would be really fun. Yeah. 
I, it would be really fun to hear what Frank Ocean would say to these. Yes. <laughs> and I'd really be interested in what Moses Sumney might say to these. Who is the last one? Who is this? Moses Sumney. He's another singer. Okay. So we'll, yeah. have, we'll have a choice of at least four people. Okay, Roxanne Gay. Yes. Okay, Frank Ocean and Sadia Hartman. We'll try. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, that would make my, my week. <laughs> Ours too. Well, you've made our week by, by um, taking the time to do this with us. Thank you, Jeremy Harris. It was really wonderful to get to do these questions with you. It was Thank wonderful. And next time we'll talk about uh, the Maquis de Sade. Yes. Oh my God. I oh my gosh. It's such a longer <laughs> conversation and I see it. The more you talk, the more I see it. It's, uh, I think he'd be very proud. Uh, uh, <laughs> that, that means the world to me. So we, okay. we want to thank you and then uh, tell us one thing, Jeremy, what we're going to look forward to. You, what's your project that the listeners can check out next because theaters are right now closed, but what's the next thing they can see that you're working on? Well, it's, that's, well so on Monday, there's going to be a uh, reading of my new play, which is an adaptation of a Brecht play. Um, and my version of the play is called Fear and Misery of the Master Race. Um, oh. which is uh, sort of taken from a Fear and Misery of the Third Reich, which also had the title um, Private Lives of the Master Race. Uh, so I mixed the two titles and made this new play that's uh, going to end up being a full-length play that's 23 connected scenes, or disconnected scenes about uh, the lives of, like, the American people from June 2015 to November 2016. Um, and may, and the, and most of the people are white Americans, um, so I'm really interested in that play. Um, and so you you can see like a 15 minute version of it on Monday with the Red Bull Theater. They're doing a Zoom reading of it. And then I'm thinking of this sort of I've been telling a lot of people that we shouldn't look at like quarantine or um, this year of theaters closing down as like uh, the year the theater went dark, but actually the year that theater was able to progress itself to greater accessibility and greater imagining. Mm. And so I'm working with a, a New York Theater Workshop and a museum that I can't say yet because they haven't completely signed off on it, on a play that I want to do in the middle of August that'll be probably the biggest project I've ever done wow. and would span like multiple countries and be online. Um, and so if that ends up happening, then that'll happen mid-August, beginning of September. Thrilling. We're so excited. Yeah. So we're really happy that you, you joined us on Zoom today. Uh, really Thank appreciate you. that. And we'll look, we look forward to checking out these uh, your new productions soon. Ah, okay. I'll talk to you all soon. Thank you. Many thanks. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.